Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We start with the great gas price debate on the show today. Lots of pain at the pump right now when you gas up your vehicle. Concerns that natural gas prices could go up too. So if you heat your home with natural gas, could you get walloped this winter? We've got a great panel standing by to discuss this now. But right now, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Sarah Comandina. Crazy. Ridiculous. Having that be an extra stress along with everything else going on is something. The price of oil has soared for the past few weeks. Petroleum analyst Patrick Dehan says it's because of a global supply crunch. China is facing a shortage of coal for electric generation. Uh, there's a natural gas shortage in Europe. Uh, and all of that is supporting the price of oil, which continues to rise as it can be a backup fuel for both natural gas and electric production. It all adds up to extra costs for consumers. Okay, let's discuss now with our panel, Dan McTagg on the show today. He's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Pleased to welcome him back, Dan. Thanks for coming on. Oh, good to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Also on the line is Peter McCartney. Peter is a climate change campaigner with the Wilderness Committee, and I'm pleased to welcome Peter back. Peter, thanks a lot for doing this. You bet. Thanks for having me. Okay, Peter, let me go to you first. When you hear people whining about high gas prices, I mean, does that bother you? I mean, I guess high gas prices, if you're trying to stop climate change, maybe you think this is a good thing? Um, I mean, I don't know if it's a good thing. I think it's always tough when, you know, you add any more costs on people. But it does definitely make the point that um, we need to stop using fossil fuels. We shouldn't be basing our entire global economy on such a volatile uh, commodity that we know uh, has these massive uh, price swings. And so, you know, I think the answer is uh, is more electrification, more um, getting people out of their cars and onto transit and bikes. And uh, I hope that's what people take away from it. Okay, Dan McTagg, what do you think? Well, I think it's a, a single hit uh, to consumers, but more importantly, it is uh, evidence of uh, you know, massive demand destruction, much of it very much unnecessary. I think countries like Canada are getting their act together when it comes to cleaner forms of energy. Uh, you know, of course, I speak with a bit of bias. I'm from Ontario. The riding I represent for 18 years among the first nuclear generators producing power, clean power, uh, way back long before it was, uh, it was uh, trendy. And, of course, even before that, in my time, uh, hydroelectric power. And it was done very affordably uh, at a time in which... Uh, not just labor, but the cost uh, to getting cheap energy and electricity to people was significantly less than it is today. And, of course, uh, a major reason why Ontario, uh, for many, many regions, was uh, for many years, was a very attractive yeah. place. Unfortunately, for electrification, and I don't think we can go down that a little further, uh, I mean, you, build, build a hydro dam. Look at your site C. Cost out of control, and uh, I'm not so so sure it's as much in, in favor of, uh, of, of, of considering consumers when it comes to these demands that are being done as a result of very much as a result of shutting in right. uh, fossil fuels like natural gas and oil. Hey, Dan, let me ask you this. Uh, I saw a tweet from you the other day about high gas prices, and you wrote, thank the green groups 
who funded pipeline blockages and disinvestment in Canada since 2008. So do you think that environmental groups like Peter's that have been fighting pipeline development in Canada, you think they're to blame for high gas prices? Yeah, they are, because, of course, what's happened now is you have a situation where demand is exceeding supply. Demand is getting back to pre-pandemic levels, and supply isn't there. Disinvestment strategies have removed $150 billion in Canadian uh, production. Uh, that's uh, you know, CapEx through ESG and other mandates, and not necessarily Peter's group himself, but I'm sure others collectively. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, massive examples of... Uh, uh, you know, renewables that they are proposing, not able to respond effectively uh, to the to those demand needs and creating, in effect, uh, the supply shortage that we're seeing okay. and the spike in prices that we're going to continue to see going forward. Peter, what do you say to that? I mean, first of all, the pipelines that we've been fighting for, you know, over a decade now are for export. They really don't have much to do with the domestic uh, price of gas. They're all just to ship our oil off um, you know, to, to Asia, mostly from this province. Uh, but I have to say, I mean, I feel like people like Dan would blame us, you know, when their car breaks down. I, the price of lumber has skyrocketed. The price of uh, semiconductors has skyrocketed. Um, we basically unplugged the global economy and plugged it back in. So there's lots of crazy stuff happening in the global economy right now. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty simplistic and it's, it's uh, opportunistic to just blame it on environmentalists that, uh, you know, are really just fighting for the future of the planet and, yeah. and uh, making the point successfully to banks that, you know, oil and gas exploration and, and production is incredibly risky. And that's, that's why they have decided not to uh, fund these projects anymore is because they don't know that they're going to pay off. Man. Well, they're not going to pay off because you create an environment, including uh, here in the province, of opposing pipelines in and of itself. What they don't realize is that pipelines have given us the prosperity that we've come to enjoy in this country. You don't just whip off 25 to $30 billion worth of uh, net revenues to governments to pay for social programs. And in fact, fund some of the groups that Peter works for. Uh, it's unfortunate that they take the view that somehow they're responsible for this. No, I don't blame them in particular. But I think generally what they've done is they've... Uh, uh, They've really locked in a, a resource that Canada can provide at a much cheaper price. It has the ability to produce it much cleaner than some of the other uh, countries around the world. And when you look at what we're seeing here, it's not just the price of gasoline that, they're, uh, that we're, uh, we're confronted with. It's the fact you have not just one but two taxes. Don't forget, you've got a 16 cent a liter tax on gasoline, which is the second carbon tax called the Clean Fuel Standard, the BC Low Carbon Fuel Standard. These are things yeah. that go over and above and have had the effect of damaging not just the ability for consumers to make ends meet, but at the end of the day, probably reduce people's desire to really uh, jump okay. on board these green ideas. Okay, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned taxes, Dan. Peter, let me ask you about that. We do have very high gas taxes in Metro Vancouver. Do you think that they should be higher? Like, should the carbon tax be higher? to create more disincentive for people to burn more fossil fuels? Yeah, ultimately, I think carbon taxes going up is a good thing. It reduces emissions, and we know that the faster we get off fossil fuels, the better. But the goal here is not for people to be paying more for gasoline. That's, that's not. We don't just like to force people to pay more. The goal is to give the incentive that it makes more sense for businesses, for residents, uh, drivers, to switch and, and choose uh, electric vehicles or even better to get out of their vehicle entirely. And if we build public transit, 
um, bike, like biking infrastructure to over 90% of the residents in Metro Vancouver, as, as some of these climate plans are calling for, it means okay. that people don't need a car. Imagine how much money you could save if you didn't have this, uh, this money pit vehicle okay, that was okay. uh, hanging over your head. Okay, Dan, so Peter says the carbon pr- taxes are too low. What do, you, what do you think? They're too high, I guess, right? Well, no. I, it, look, I think oh. Peter and I will agree that we both are going to see these prices uh, and carbon taxes go up, but they will have no appreciable impact. Look at BC has been experimenting with carbon tax since 2008. Your emissions continue to rise. More importantly... This is one of the largest countries, one of the coldest countries in which to live. We can all hope for the idea that we can uh, ride around on skateboards and bicycles. But at the end of the day, even the building of 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 an EV requires a lot more fossil fuels. We have to really appreciate the fact that fossil fuels themselves provides, uh, you know, a ready, reliable and affordable uh, outcome. We may be talking something that's 40, 50 years down the road. Rushing as we are right now to saying, let's just cut it all off, okay. is having a disastrous effect, effect Pe- on the economy. And don't take my word for it. Talk to anybody in Britain today. Peter, real quickly, response, your response, and then I'll fit in a quick break here. I mean, I think this is all a bit of a smokescreen. The International Energy Agency says that Canada's uh, oil supply is the first to go. And people like Dan are trying to avoid that conversation, that people aren't going to want our oil for very much longer. Um, you know, by, by coming on and, uh, and trying to, you know, get people riled up about gas prices. So I think we need to have a serious conversation in this country about what happens after fossil fuels are over. And we continue talking about gas prices with my guests, both sides of it for you, Dan McTagg, Canadians for Affordable Energy, Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee. Let's go to your phone calls here. Rick and Port Moody, hi. Good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, You know, I I really think that it's not really a one-way-or-the-other-way solution that's going to be what we're going to see that's uh, that's going to emerge at the end of this all. Uh, We hear, you know, BC Hydro is saying right now, if we go all electric by 2035, they're going to need three site Cs. There's just not going to be enough enough electricity to run an electric grid system that you know every environmentalist is dreaming for i'm hopeful and i really am positive of of looking and seeing at some of these new technologies that are coming out where they're they're scrubbing the uh, co2 and they're converting that into a fuel that burns in vehicles so i think at the end of the day you know in 20 years 30 years 40 years It'll be a hybrid system. You're going to have you know, electric vehicles, but you're still going to have um, uh, um, combustion-fueled engines that are okay. running, but they're going to be running on something different. However, what's really being missed here is just that all these added costs that are going on, and, and fuel is a big part of it that's falling yeah. into, the, um, into the chain here very quickly. And, you know, we're going to see inflation in next year. You know, I, I listened to a guy yesterday on CKNW uh, that's going to be between 15 to 20%, and a big chunk of that is just Whoa. because of the shipping costs that are that are going on. So, there okay, is thank a- you. Okay, thank you for the call. I think you raised a lot of good points, Dan. Let me go to you on that. When he raises the you know the cost of living argument and element to this, your thoughts? Well, the cascading effect is ubiquitous, whether we like it or not. Natural gas uh, for heating, natural gas used in uh, in, in fertilizers uh, that uh, farmers need, uh, and oil uh, used for diesel, jet fuel, gasoline to move the economy. Uh, whether we like it or not, uh, these are realities, and they're not going to be transformed overnight. I think what he's really referring to is we can we should go at this a little more carefully, a little slower, and of course recognize that Canada has you know, been leader uh, for many, many decades in clean energy. Yes, we can do more, but if you really want to talk about problems, let's start dealing with the problem over the, across the uh, pond in the Pacific, because frankly, China doesn't care about climate targets. Canada can twist itself into a pretzel and hurt its economy and damage 
consumer confidence uh, to the extent that is, uh, we're starting to see. If we don't address India, China, and uh, the growing uh, use of uh, products uh, like coal in those parts of the okay. world, then uh, all these discussions are doomed. Okay, Peter McCartney, we hear that argument quite often. Why should we, why should we Canada, take the lead on this as just a small contributor to greenhouse gases in the planet when you look at other, what other countries are doing? What do you think? I mean, we're not a small contributor. We have some of the highest per capita emissions in the world. Um, and it's because of our the giant outsized role of the oil and gas industry uh, poison our pollution. Um, but, you know, when you talk about cost of living, I mean, farmers this year lost a, over a quarter of their crop yield in Canada. Like, that drives grocery prices up. Um, if you think that... You mean, you mean okay, your, your full, point... Your point there is they lost their they lost their crop yield because of climate change. Yeah, because of yeah. droughts. If you think rising gas prices are going to drive up cost of living, wait until uh, you know two degrees worth of warming, and that's uh, that makes it a lot harder to get insurance. It makes it a lot harder to uh, you know fund things like public services because we're spending so much money on wildfire uh, response. These are real costs that are costing people today, and are only going to get worse if we keep burning fossil fuels. What do you say to that, Dan? The IPCC doesn't even agree with that. So in reality, and uh, whether it's Stephen Koonin, whether it is uh, Michael Schellenberger, people who are climate scientists, in fact, uh, would say that, uh, you know, the weather is not the issue. Uh, Climate uh, change is a little different from all of that. And it uh, has to do with, of course, uh, the density, uh, the the amount of uh, carbon that is out there and its interaction. And there's a number of reasons for that. It's not a, a question of saying it doesn't exist, but I suspect that uh, you know every time you have bad weather isn't uh, necessarily the tr- the, uh, well, the you're not or the you, trigger for you're making not a- prices that go higher and, and the same with the IEA the international yeah. energy agency which peter referred to a little earlier these are the folks that said hey let's stop making fossil fuels now on bended knee Fadi Byrell, their executive director going to OPEC and saying hey we need more oil look you can't have it both ways what we need is a smooth transition, an orderly transition, not one which says, hey, the Great Reset happens overnight. If not, then we're going to tut-tut those people who are out there driving vehicles that happen to have gas and can't afford to go to electric vehicles, okay. whose batteries, damaging to the economy and to the environment, are made in China. Peter, I'll give you the last word here, 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think the International Energy Agency is predicting that uh, oil demand is going to peak, and we've got to figure out what to do about it. I, I just think... Um, you know, the world, the world is getting warmer and, uh, and these, the sooner we use, the sooner we stop using fossil fuels, the better. If we want a smooth transition, we better start now and we better act as fast as possible because otherwise it'll have to tank. Guys, thank you to both. (laughs) Thank you to both of you guys. We got lots more calls. We just simply couldn't fit in. So we'll just have to have you back and do it again. I'm very grateful to both of you. Dan McTagg there, Canadians for Affordable Energy. Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee. Let's talk about those tough new COVID restrictions in northern BC now. It's a northern circuit breaker here with COVID cases on the rise. Uh, the region has the province's highest per capita COVID cases, straining hospital services, lower than average vaccination rates. The province now shutting down bars and nightclubs unless they have full meal service. Alcohol sales now cut off at 10 p.m. Let's discuss now with Troy McKenzie. Troy is the owner of the Black Clover Irish Pub in Prince George. And I'm pleased to welcome him. Troy, thanks a lot for coming on today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, Troy, what is the impact of these new rules on your business? Well, uh, they're, uh, they're impressive. It's, it's had an effect. Obviously, it just happened last week with uh, you know, short notice, but 
we obviously notice some big uh, impact. A lot of our sales are done in the evening evening time at the pub, especially, and and uh, it has a it has a large impact. Yeah, so you're not shut down, right? Because you what you serve meals no. there at the pub. Okay. Yeah, we have full food, so it's just a 10, 10 p.m. Uh, shut down on liquor sales, and then right. we sort of round everybody up and get them out of there. Right. What was the previous last call time? Uh, it, we were back to normal. Yeah, we were back. back one eight. It's one a.m. Right. Yep. One a.m. Okay, so you've gone. So last call is now ten p.m. instead of one one a.m. What kind of yep. impact does that have on your bottom line? About, uh, I think it's about thirty uh, percent. That's what we've seen. Like we lose about thirty percent of revenue um, shutting down at that time. It probably affects earlier in the week less, but lots of our business is done uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. We have live music normally, and and uh, you know we wouldn't really be starting that till about eight o'clock, and so it has a has a very large impact. Okay, so oh, live music. So that's got to does that impact your uh, your booking of bands and stuff to bring into the bar? Yeah, we're trying to yeah. feel it out, but uh, you know, for example, we booked flights. We bring in people from Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and wow. uh, you try and get ahead on these seat sales and book flights for a couple months, uh, having confidence that that wouldn't be altered. But now we're uh, stuck holding that bag as well. So we're just going to find out if the revenue stream is good enough to support uh, live music. It's a big part of our. Uh, uh, our business and what we're known for so we obviously want to continue it but it might not be feasible at this time wow okay speaking of troy mckenzie he's the owner of the black clover irish pub in prince george Uh, troy did you guys get any advance notice or warning that this was coming i think about i think we found out about 3 30 we found out with the rest rest of the province so i think we found out at about 3 30 on the thursday and we were expected to close down at uh 10 p.m that the same day yeah. How do you feel about that? Like the sort of lack of notice? Yeah, it's been, you know what, it, it's uh, the fact that there's never a conversation that it's just handed out is, is difficult, but no notice. Like it seems like the notice gets less and less, it's, if you can believe it. Like you can't give, uh, I mean, like I said, I just flown in somebody from Calgary to play. They literally landed after the after the regulations have changed. So, you know, you can't, uh, there's no magic in my hat to figure out, figure out how to solve that. Yeah. Do you think that this will be effective? I mean, do you think it'll reduce the spread of COVID or do you think people maybe just, well, I don't know, they part more party at home maybe? Yeah. I think the the problem is the confusion over, will it affect it? Right. I agree with what you just said. Do I think, I think that the province is telling us that it's young unvaccinated people that are uh are the problem um and causing the high rates in hospitals well we have to have a vaccine passport at present so you can't come into my business unless you're vac- vaccinated so right. it, it doesn't seem like the attack is is really what the problem is so i'm not sure what kind of impact it will have um on on the rate of uh infection Hey, Troy, last question for you. A 30% hit to your bottom line. That's obviously a major hit to your business. Are, are you getting any kind of, is there any sort of program to help you to from government assistance to get through this? Yeah, we haven't heard of anything. Obviously, you know, we're at the tail end of wage subsidies and, and uh, the other sort of support has gone away a long time ago. So the fact that, you know, they shut down one section of the province, I would be doubtful that they would have something that's directed at us 
at us. I hope there is, but I yeah. certainly haven't heard anything. Do you think, so you're staying open for now, I guess, what, are you just canceling your live music acts? Is that what you got to do? Yeah, or? like I said, I've got to, we, we've only had a few days to look at this, so yeah. um, I'm not going to sort of have a knee-jerk reaction. I'll take a look at it and try and figure out if it's feasible to continue and, and then adjust from there. Troy, I know it's tough times for you. Thanks for coming on to talk today. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, you got you bet. Troy McKenzie there. He is the owner of the Black Clover Irish Pub in Prince George. And their sales, uh, liquor sales now cut off at 10 p.m. You heard him talk about the live music acts that he flies into Prince George. Doesn't know how that's going to go now uh, with the new early uh, last call. Let's check in with Jeff Guinard now. Jeff is the executive director of Able BC. They represent the bars and pubs in British Columbia. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. And of course, Mike, how you doing? I'm, I'm good. Thanks for doing this. And I'm sure that's a familiar story that, that you've just heard there. What are you hearing from others, uh, pe- your people well, in the north? Yeah, I mean, Troy is a perfect example of what we're hearing from a bunch of places up there. And by the way, the Black Clover is a great pub. Anybody who's in the area, I always stop in. But essentially, there's two things about this that people are finding frustrating. First off, since the introduction of the vaccine verifications, all of our customers are either single or double vaccinated already. So ending liquor sales at 10 p.m. in the industry where we only have vaccinated people in the room, we're, we're not really sure what that's supposed to solve, right? Because the, the fundamental challenge from a public health perspective is Northern BC's got about 6% of our overall population, but a quarter of the new cases are coming from there, right? So we definitely have to increase the vaccination rates. But I'm just not sure that our industry understands why ending liquor sales at 10 p.m. is going to do that. Certainly understands shutting down certain environments where you know, like nightclubs, uh, as much as I hate to say it, I mean, where, where younger folks tend to congregate and some of them are not vaccinated until that until that vaccination rate increases. So, you know, we'll, you know, those businesses can understand in some sense, but ending like yourself at 10 p.m. just seems arbitrary. Okay, well, I guess the, uh, you know, if, if Bonnie Henry was here right now, she'd say, well, even if you're double vaccinated, you're still at risk from the virus, right? And there's so much COVID circulating in, in Prince George. This is the this is the reason for the for the circuit breaker and for the early cutoff. But I mean, you know, I've talked to bar owners when we had these earlier last calls and these earlier liquor, early liquor sale cutoffs. And people would say, well, you know, if they're not going to drink here in my bar where they're, they're masked up when they come in and they're getting, a, they're getting a passport check at the door to make sure they're vaccinated, then where are they going to go? Are they going to gather in parties in private homes? And maybe that's even riskier. Yeah, that's our concern. I mean, ultimately, this is about managing risk, right? I mean, the point of getting vaccinations is it dramatically reduces your risk of contracting COVID, reduces the severity of your symptoms. So you don't necessarily have to go to hospital, and it makes it much less likely that you're going to pass on or transmit the virus to somebody else, right? So encouraging people to hang out in places where there are vaccinated people around them uh, and discouraging you to hang out in places where not vaccine, uh, vaccinated patients around you seem, seems to make sense, right? And that is exactly our concern because we saw it last time. I mean, you know, it's seems like a long time ago during the pandemic because, you know, a week feels like two months. But uh, if you remember the last time we had to liquor sales early, uh, yeah. we saw we had to put in additional restrictions on events and home gatherings because people just shifted their gatherings to home. Having people hang out in a place where, especially now, 18 months into this pandemic, you know, we've, we've got our black belts and COVID protocols. We know how to keep patrons seated and keep them separate and protect them when they're out uh, in establishments. And we've been saying for a while it is there's no very few cases are coming from the hospitality industry, right? It is safe. to. How do you know that? Because they've offered no evidence that they are. Yeah. We've heard directly from public health officials that the hospitality industry has not been a significant source of viral transmission. Okay, I heard uh, you heard Troy McKenzie there 
talk about the lack of notice that they got. Basically, mm-hmm. they found out when the rest of the province was notified that their liquor sales were being cut off three hours early that day. Yeah, uh, they would like to hear a little bit more advance notice or consultation. I mean, has your group been? W- did your group get advance consultation on this decision? Not much. Uh, I mean, I, I share Troy's frustration on that. We we all do, um, and we will have governments back and trying to stop the spread of this virus. So we can get out of this period as quickly as possible. But I know that's one of the things that um, we, we meet with governments several times a week and to meet with public health officials at least weekly. And these are the kind of struggles they're having, too, because they're trying to respond to real-world data as quickly as possible, right? And um, they started talking about regional orders a while ago, and we've already issued some in various parts of the province. I mean, that, that makes sense at this point in the pandemic, right, to target areas where are having lower rates of vaccination. Um, but obviously everything we can do to give industry even a few days' notice is, uh, is immensely helpful because these decisions have direct financial consequences for us, right? Um, wow. Like Troy was saying, he was flying in some music acts, and now they're like, well, they, the rules have changed, and you know, we're only going to start the performance at 9 p.m., and now I, it doesn't make sense to have them perform for an hour or something, right? So it's, those, are, those are little things that can be uh, mitigated just by giving additional notice from them. Okay, yeah, he mentioned that he's probably looking at a 30% hit to his bottom line with these restrictions, yeah. which is obviously a lot. Do you mm-hmm. think that there should be some new programs put in place to help businesses get through this? Yeah, so in this, we, we surveyed the entire province, and it, it on average, if you're in sort of that, that community, like a place like Prince George, about 30% of your business comes in after 10, p, 10 p.m., right? So, or 30% of your revenue. So that that's what Tori is talking about. And you can think of it another way. I mean, it takes you up until six or seven or eight o'clock at night to even make a profit after you pay your staff and your, you know, your cost of your goods and your insurance, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's tough for our businesses. It's tough for a lot of businesses. But we are talking to government about what is the appropriate level of support because we are bearing the direct costs of these new public health protocols. And we have no choice. I mean, you know, obviously, we, we support them, uh, and, but we are legally obliged to follow these rules. Right, but these rules tend to disproportionately impact the hospitality industry over and over and over again in this pandemic, and we've been losing money or breaking even for the past eighteen to twenty months. So it's it's very difficult when you finally get a chance you can make a bit of profit, and the rules change, and you're not able to do it anymore. Particularly when you, it's hard to understand, right? Why why are we cutting it off at ten p.m. where there's no evidence to suggest people are coming into bars at eleven p.m. and getting COVID? Okay, so you're in talks with the government on some sort of assistance package. Is that is that did I hear yeah. you right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've been advocating for that um, since the beginning of the the vaccine verification requirements came in because that's added cost to businesses as well. But with these new orders targeting the hospitality industry again, uh, both in the interior and in the northern BC, we are, we're definitely working with our provincial and federal partners to try and come up with some appropriate support for them. Right. And is there any supports in place right now or, or is there nothing? Uh, so the, the province has already done, uh, they've invested almost $200 million of support into the hospitality industry. It doesn't feel like it when you're one of the you know 15,000 businesses in our industry that you know got a $10,000 grant or something like that. But yeah, I mean, we also introduced wholesale pricing for them, which is about an $80 million yeah. investment from the provincial government. So the provincial government has stepped up, but those are those are in the past now, right? And now we're saying, well, we, we might actually need more if we're going to get through this because the cost of losing these businesses is far greater than the short-term investment. Um, the federal government supports and things like wage subsidy and rent subsidies, which have been the backbone of our industry's uh, survivability in the past uh, past right. year or so, those are expiring soon. And we um, we're hearing some positive signs from the federal government that they're looking at extending those. Um, and a, you know, obviously, they need to be tapered off in the long run because nobody wants to be using these supports uh, over the next you know, years or anything like that. But right. certainly, a few more months would make sense. Jeff, thanks for coming on. 
It's my pleasure, Mike. Have a great day. Uh, okay, thank you. Jeff Guinard there, Executive Director, Alliance of Beverage Licensees. That's the main group representing BC bars and pubs. Talk about the equalization system in Canada now. This is where the wealthier provinces... Some of the tax revenues that are raised there, some of that money gets transferred to less wealthy provinces in the country. That is equalization. It is in the Constitution of Canada. Today in Alberta, a lot of people in Alberta say equalization is not fair. A lot of money is flowed out of Alberta to other provinces under equalization. So today they're having a referendum on it. Today is referendum day in Alberta. Albertans voting on this question. So section 36.2 of the Constitution be removed from the Constitution. That's the equalization section in the Constitution. That referendum is happening today. British Columbia has a stake in this too if this ends up with a constitutional debate in the entire country. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guests. We've got both sides of it for you. Kevin Lacey is the Alberta director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. They are urging people to vote today to get rid of the uh, equalization section of the Constitution. Kevin, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it a lot. Also, Kevin Toom on the line, professor of economics at the University of Calgary. Appreciate his time today. Trevor, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Great to be here. Okay, it's great to have you both here. Kevin, let me go to you first. So you're encouraging people in Alberta to vote yes on this referendum question today, right? Get rid of equalization in the Constitution. Okay, tell me why. Well, look, it's time that Albertans stood up and uh, said no to this unfairness. It's been happening for many, many decades. Albertans have committed more uh, to Confederation than almost any other Canadian. And... The issue really is that as Albertans go through hard times, as it has in the last six and a half years, these equalization payments uh, continue to go up, uh, and they continue to go up far beyond. They will go up another um, after uh, the referendum today. And so what we're really urging people to do is to empower our politicians um, to make real changes to this equalization program because other mechanisms... Um, such as negotiations, such as politicians stamping their feet, haven't worked in bringing fairness for Alberta. So what we're hoping is a strong yes vote today will send a signal to Ottawa and to the country as a whole that Alberta's fed up, that it wants changes, and it wants real negotiation now. Okay, now is there a, BC has a stake in this too, right? Like BC has paid into equalization over the years as well, correct? That's right, and uh, yeah. all the uh, all the contributing provinces uh, certainly have a stake in this, and this this uh, equalization uh, policy um, will will be renegotiated by 2024. And you know we've seen in the past that politicians have stood up to the federal government and said uh, that they wanted to see changes, and that those changes never materialized. Um, the last time this agreement expired, the federal government simply renewed the equalization program without any debate at all by adding it into okay. the uh, federal budget. Um, so it's time for us to stand up. It's time for us to make a case, and that's what we're hoping happens uh, with this referendum. Today. Okay, as Kevin Lacey, they're uh, at supporting the yes side in this referendum in Alberta today to remove equalization from the constitution of the country. Trevor Toom, University of Calgary, you disagree, right? 
Uh, well, I, uh, in part, I agree and in, in a lot of ways disagree. I think we should keep in mind the question being posed to voters in Alberta is about the very principle of equalization. Do they want this section of the Constitution removed? It's really not about the formula itself. And in terms of broader issues of fairness that, that Kevin noted, that we really do need to remember that this federal program is there to support provinces that have below average economic strength, right? Below average ability to raise revenue. And Alberta doesn't receive a payment, not because uh, we're victims or because our economy is weak and our revenue raising capabilities are, are low, despite our recession, as big as it was, we remain in the country's top spot. No province has a stronger economy than Alberta, and no provincial government has a stronger revenue-raising capacity than Alberta. So a lot of our challenges here in Alberta, a lot of our fiscal challenges in particular, are the result of our own choices, and we really shouldn't be looking to Ottawa to solve our problems for us. Okay, let me play a clip here from Alberta Premier Jason Kenney and get your thoughts. So here's Jason Kenney explaining why Alberta is holding this referendum on equalization payments today. Let's have a listen here to the Alberta Premier. This is about uh, whether or not Alberta should push hard to get a fair deal. Uh, I always say that we Albertans are generous. We are proud to be able to share some of our good fortune with other parts of Canada when times are good here and bad elsewhere. But we insist on having the ability to develop our resources and the prosperity that, that ends up being shared through uh, programs like equalization that's what this vote is about okay so jason kenny there saying that albertans are generous as as he put it there kevin so i guess he's saying he's willing alberta is willing to help out other provinces with their resource revenue but what he just thinks they're giving away too much that's exactly right and i think in particular the fact that the program is inflexible so as the economy declines um the payments and the last, uh, you know, since 2014, have continued to increase. And there's an absurdity in that, um, that there's no correction for what is Al regular Albertans are going through. And I would just point out that, uh, you know, I don't really like the question that's being posed here today either. I think it's not a very clear, because ultimately there's not going to be a change in the Constitution, um, the principle of... of you know, equally equal uh, provinces uh, is going to continue long after this referendum, no matter what the How results are. But having, but having said that, having yeah. said that, um, these changes will only happen if we actually take initiative to do things. The other times that equalization has changed, for example, in the Atlantic Accords, um, where they changed the way the resource revenues were uh, added into the formula for maritime provinces in Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, those changes only happened because the premier of the day, Danny Williams, flew the Canadian flag upside down and raised holy heck in order to get changes for his province. Uh, what, what's happening here, this is a political tactic by the premier, uh, and I think one that uh, ha deserves a lot of merit in order to go to people and say, this is not just an issue at the premier's table, this is an issue for the kitchen table of every Albertan that we've been treated unfairly, and then we're going to stand up and we're going to say no. Okay. Uh, and until we do that, we're not going to see any changes. Okay, some people have pointed to this uh, referendum and basically say it's, it's some kind of a political stunt that Kenny's trying to pull here to distract attention from uh, the government's poor performance on the on the pandemic. And let me play this clip here for you, Trevor Toom, and get, get your thoughts. This is 
Jason Kenney uh, talking about whether the federal government will listen to the results of this referendum if Albertans vote today to get rid of equalization from the Constitution. What will happen? Here's what he had to say here. If a province holds a, a referendum on a constitutional amendment and a majority votes in favor, that it, the federal government then has an obligation to negotiate that matter in good faith with the province. So this is uh, our effort to get Ottawa to take Alberta's demands seriously. Okay, I, I wonder about that, Trevor. Like, this is a non-binding referendum, right? Like, if it passes today, if Albertans vote, like, yeah, we're mad as hell about this equalization and we want rid of it, does that does that compel the, the federal government to actually do anything, like to ne- renegotiate the Constitution, or no? Yeah, so I think the short answer is no, and I, the Premier would concede this point as well, that referenda don't have a, a special legal status in our constitutional system. If the government of Alberta wishes to negotiate any aspect of the Constitution, it need only submit a formal letter uh, on behalf of the government of Alberta, pass through the legislature here to other partners in Confederation, and then we talk about that. The referendum itself doesn't create a new legal uh, pressure or requirement on other provinces. Often, uh, the Premier will point to the Quebec secession reference uh, as um, uh, as evidence in support of referenda creating a special uh, burden on other partners in confederation. But that even in that ruling, it's not uh, clear that this applies to any other referendums. What, because what, do you think, what do you think about Jason Kenney's argument here that this equalization system is, is effectively unfair to Alberta and their, nat- their bountiful natural resources, primarily oil and gas, that Alberta is giving billions and billions of dollars to other provinces, notably Quebec, Mm -hmm. that in many cases are hostile to Alberta's interests in their attempts to develop their natural resources by doing things like uh, fighting against pipelines. That would be good for Alberta. Why should Alberta give all these billions of dollars to Quebec when Quebec is fighting against them effectively? That's a, that's a great question, and superficially, the argument does sound like it has a, a lot of merit to it. Now, I do want to be quite clear that I think there are a lot of reasonable changes we can make to the equalization formula, and it should have been renewed, uh, I'm sorry, reviewed uh, a couple of years ago. So I'm not defending the, the current formula itself, but critically, Alberta, as a province, like as a provincial government, doesn't pay anything, not a dime to any other province. All of our resource revenues stay in Alberta. What funds equalization is the federal budget and Canadians paying their Canadian taxes. And so we could eliminate the entire program tomorrow, all $21 billion gone, and nothing would change in terms of tax rates that Canadians here or anywhere pay. Okay, what do you, what do you want to say to that, uh, Kevin? Well, I'd say two things. I'd say, first of all, that uh, Alberta certainly does pay more than its fair share into Confederation. It does so now and has done so for the past 60 years. I don't even think there's much of a debate uh, on that. I also think this whole issue of equality, um, and one of the bases for which is income, is also a bit of a misnomer because it also doesn't account for the standard of living in those places. For example, I moved from Nova Scotia to Alberta, and I can tell you that my Alberta home was far more expensive than the one I had uh, in Halifax. Um, it's just the nature of the way that the country is uh, separated. But I think okay. at, at when it's all said and done, Albertans over-contribute. And you're right, we have not gotten 
Albertans have not gotten what they paid in with regards to the political pressure with with the rest of the country. We've had no pipelines laws. We've had a discriminatory, discriminatory uh, West Coast tanker ban. We've had the Northern yeah. Gateway Pipeline move, the Energy East Pipeline. All of these things have dealt a huge blow. So I think the question the Premier is asking is right, which is we contribute a lot of money into Confederation, and, uh, and what do we get for that? What we, we haven't gotten is any political... Um, Okay. We haven't got any political will from the federal government to defend our interests, only to defend the interests of others. Okay. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about the referendum that's uh, happening in Alberta today on equalization, uh, the referendum asks Albertans if they want to change the Constitution of Canada. They say re- equalization is unfair to Alberta. Billions of dollars flowing out of the province. My guess is Kevin Lacey, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Trevor Toome, University of Calgary, Let's go to your phone calls. Dan on Vancouver Island. Hi. Well, hi. My question is, um, I understand that Quebec's hydro revenues, which are in the billions and billions of dollars, are somehow not tied into the equalization formula. How is that fair? I, I find that completely unfair. And do BC's hydro revenues, are they also exempt from the equalization formula? Tre- Trevor Toome, do you know? I, I do, yeah. So hydro revenues, BC, Manitoba, Quebec, these revenues are included in the formula and treated the same way as other resource revenues. So uh, I'll note there is a valid concern that provinces might be charging too little for electricity. And so while hydro-Quebec revenues do count, they may be lower than what they would be if electricity were priced at a level similar to other jurisdictions. Mm. And that's a, that's a critique for BC uh, potentially as well. Interesting. Kevin Lacey, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I agree with what Trevor said. I think the other thing to point out, just from a BC perspective, is that um, these equalization payments go to governments, not to individuals. So, uh, right. for example, in Nova Scotia, when um, the shipbuilding contract for the naval warships came out, um, those uh, the money that was given in equalization, because it goes to governments, uh, can be used for all kinds of things. And they, they largely subsidized their shipbuilding industry against the BC uh, C-SPAN from Vancouver Island. So you had this issue where, um, you know, you're using equalization dollars to work against the interests of provinces like British right. Columbia. And it's one of the in- inadequacies of the program and one of the reasons why it has to be changed. Okay, Daryl on the line in Coquitlam. Hi. Hi, thanks for taking my call, Mike. Uh, I'd like to ask your two Alberta guests a question. And my question is, the current formula used for equalization was put in place by two Albertans, Jason Kenney and Stephen Harper. Why did Stephen Harper not defend the rights of Alberta? And how does the formula actually work? Okay, well, we only have one minute left, (laughs) so I'm not sure I'll be able to get into the formula. But Kevin, your thoughts on that? Well, just about the Alberta um, the reference. Look, there was a minority government at the time, um, and there were a lot of trade-offs going on with federal policy. Um, and there was improvements made in, in that uh, equalization debate. But no, it's still, it doesn't matter where the, where the person comes from who set it up. Uh, what I know is that it's still unfair, and it still needs to get changed. Uh, whether or not the person who set it up is from Alberta, British Columbia, or Quebec, it doesn't really matter. But now is the time right. for to see real change. We're going to have that debate uh, between now and the 2024 when this when this is renegotiated again. Trevor, Trevor Toome, do you think this referendum will pass today? We just got 20 seconds here. Uh, you know, I <laughs> don't have to tell. I, I think, yeah, I think no, it will pass. Yeah. 
Could be close. Uh, it'll be closer than it would have been had a lot of the, the COVID disruptions um, and issues not occurred. That's for okay. sure. Okay. We'll be interesting to see what happens there today, guys. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it. Kevin Lacey, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Trevor Toome from the University of Calgary. We've talked a lot here on the show about some of the crime spikes that we've seen in some Vancouver neighborhoods, notably the West End. Gastown, the Granville Business District. We've seen a lot of break-ins, broken windows, assaults, shoplifting, general mayhem on the streets. I've talked to a lot of business owners and residents in these neighborhoods about their, the problems. The police are stepping up street patrols to deal with it. But in many of these cases, are we dealing with people who are mentally ill on the streets? I think everyone has seen this. We've seen people, I think, who are obviously struggling. They're sick on the streets of the city. They appear to be mentally ill. Maybe sometimes they've got drug addictions or both sometimes. Talk to police officers who express their frustration at this if they see someone they believe uh, needs help for a mental illness. Uh, They could take them to see a doctor who can assess them. But then the people just end up back on the streets and the problems continue in an endless cycle. Is there a better way? Should we consider forcing people into mental health care, involuntary care? Is that an option that should be used more often? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Julian Daly. Julian is the executive director of Our Place, which does an absolutely fantastic job in Victoria and helping the homeless and, and people on the street. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Julian, thanks a lot for coming on today. Morning, Mike. I know when we talk about these situations in Vancouver, in Victoria, we're seeing similar similar problems like in your experience in the capital city in victoria are you seeing more trouble and more problems on the street right now what how you just described uh, the streets of vancouver you could have used the exact same description to describe downtown victoria in the last while too yeah yeah for sure and it's it's troubling it's disturbing and i know that our place that you guys do an awesome job there of trying to help people when it comes to mental illness though do you think there are some gaps in the system here for getting people help? Yeah, I, I think there are. There's a, you know, there's a there's a small group of people, and you just talked about them, who are on our streets in Vancouver and Victoria, probably in every city in our country, who are, are so unwell mentally, uh, and also suffering often from uh, the struggles of addictions as well, and they're simply not being attended to. They're simply not getting the care they need. And, uh, you know, the, the, the need for involuntary care, for, I think, for those individuals is, is really now. And we've, we, we, we see that a range of interventions that have happened that have, have changed nothing for those folk. Uh, so, you know, and they are a very small group, I'd, I'd hasten to add. Right. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we should have sort of wholesale everyone who's on the streets picked up and put into institutions, uh, but there is certainly a, a need for, for those that are most chronically ill and whose, whose health needs are not being attended to and who, frankly, won't come into, into housing voluntarily or even if they do come in, they can't maintain that housing uh, for a whole series of reasons, often because of violence and, and, and issues related to their mental health. 
Right. For people who are struggling with mental illness on the street, maybe they're homeless, they've got drug addiction, maybe they've got multiple barriers like this in their lives. When they, when they are, when they come to you for help or they're stopped by the police and it, it seems obvious they, they need some help, they need some help for their mental illness. What kind of services are available right now? Because I've talked to some very frustrated police officers on this file who say that they have tried to help sick people and the services simply aren't there. And, and they aren't. And we, we have very little in the way of uh, mental health resources. We, we have very, very little that we can do for those who have the most acute illness. You know, those that have got mild to moderate mental health challenges, our outreach workers can work with them and help them stabilize a bit. We can get them to to see a doctor and, uh, and things like that. But those who are most unwell, there's, there's really little that we can offer them. It's out of... It's, uh, it's out of the realm of care that we can provide here at our place. And I think that's true of a lot of organizations. And, and we share the same frustration with the police. You know, the police here really want to help those folk who are most unwell because they're also the most vulnerable. I think that's often gets forgotten. Right. They're the ones who are most exploited on the street, and particularly the women who are subject to the most appalling and disgusting and stomach-churning sexual violence almost on a daily basis. You know, I know women who who just they essentially get raped every day on the street. And, and, and they're so vulnerable because of their mental health situation. And there's nowhere for them. And there's nowhere the police can take them. There's nowhere that we can take them. And uh, it's desperate to watch it. That's why I've, you know, come out and spoken about this. You know, I'm not a, against civil liberties and never have been. In fact, I spent most of my working life fighting for people's rights. But, you know, there, there comes a time when you have to, when you have to speak to the truth you see and that, that, that there is a small group of people who we're just failing as a society and we're essentially allowing to die slowly on our streets, miserable death, frankly. Wow. Speaking to Julian Daly, the executive director of the Our Place Homeless Shelter in Victoria. So would you advocate for what's known as involuntary care? So people would be, they'd be forced into treatment? Like how would that work? I think for certain individuals, yes, I would advocate. With strict and very clear and transparent legal safeguards, uh, I think that some absolutely do need that. They're not in a position to make an informed decision about their care. They right. simply are not because of the, the acuteness of their mental health conditions. And they, I think, need to be taken into involuntary care for a period of time until they stabilize and can make a, an informed decision about their ongoing care or indeed in some circumstances it may be that they need to be in some sort of institution for uh, for a longer period maybe even for the rest of their lives and I'm not advocating for return to some of the you know very abusive and uh, and uncaring institutions that did exist in our history but uh, to, to places of healing and compassion and, and, and genuine care. Well, I remember when they, they shut down the Riverview Psychiatric Hospital in British Columbia many, many decades ago. And in the lead up to that, there was a lot of complaints about uh, human rights abuses, civil rights abuses, people being abused or neglected in mental health facilities. And that's one of the reasons why these large institutions were shut down. And our, I, there seemed to be a lot of public support for shutting them down at the time, too. 
But when people, Absolutely. right? But then are, were people like just abandoned on the street? Though there was there was no services for them after that. Well, I think we threw the baby out with the bathwater. There's absolutely no doubt that the abuses there needed to be addressed and that some people were kept in appalling conditions all their lives for doing very minor things. So, But the, 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 the flip side of that was that there were also people who were very unwell who needed institutional care, in my mind, and who then no longer were able to get it. And there's more and more people coming on the streets who, who do need that. And... I think if we have the proper safeguards in place and it is time limited, I think involuntary care can work for folk. And, it, you know, it's people also have other rights as well. You know, I think people have the right to be safe, the right to be healthy, the right to be housed. And some of the folk that I see on the street who are so unwell, they don't have access to those rights right now. And uh, I think by you know, providing involuntary care for them for a period of time, you, you, you help recognize those rights to be healthy, to be safe, and to be housed. Back a few minutes more with my guest, Julian Daly, Executive Director of Our Place. It's a homeless shelter in Victoria. Uh, we're talking about mental illness on the streets of the city. We see this in Vancouver. We see it in Victoria. We see people who are just obviously in distress and need help. Uh, talk to any police officer and they'll tell you they have trouble getting people mental health treatment uh, when they're stopped on the street. Uh, Julian Daly, like when people get sent into some of these treatment programs that are like short term or maybe they're not, maybe they're not resident. It's not residential care, maybe like day programs. Like, do you see people and the people that you help at our place in Victoria, do people go through those type of mental health programs like, you know, short term programs? Well, the short-term treatment programs notoriously don't work especially well because they're 30 to 60 days and usually what gets folk to the place where they need to to need that, that treatment is so profound and deep, the trauma, that you can't possibly address it in 30 to 60 days. So that's why you see a lot of folk, you know, just going to treatment many, many times without things substantially changing for them. So we, we advocate for a longer term treatment from nine to 24 months. In fact, we run a program like that here on the island and that has great success uh, because of that. But the folk that we were talking about earlier, I mean, they wouldn't even get to the place where they would be prepared to go into treatment because the treatment is a voluntary decision, uh, as is housing, transitional housing, which I know you have a lot of in, in Vancouver as well as we do here. Uh, and the and the complex care treatment that the government is about to launch, which is great, but that is only going to work for people who choose to go into it. And my 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 point is that those that are most unwell almost certainly will never choose to go into those situations, whether right. it's housing or treatment. And even if they do, which occasionally they will, they can't sustain it because you know we had one person who you know we had in one of our transitional housing sites who would who would absolutely fall into the acutely unwell category and and we had to discharge her after two or three weeks and it was really hard to do that we didn't want to do it and we didn't do it lightly but she was hitting staff in the face she was hitting other residents she was so violent she was so unwell and we had to discharge her and she's now on the streets again and she's being i know she's being sexually exploited and she, her, her life is, is terrible on the street, and there's nowhere else for her. And then someone like her, you know, would, I think, really genuinely benefit from some involuntary care where there are people who can really properly look after her. Because my colleagues are great. 
They're fantastic, Mike, but they're not clinicians. They're not yeah. mental health clinicians. And, you know, folk who are that unwell need to be in environments where there are professional, mental health professionals who can attend to their needs properly and comprehensively. You recently appeared before an all-party committee of MLAs on this topic, and I, I congratulate you for the way that you're you're speaking out on this important topic because I think it's one that maybe, I don't know, some people we've tried to avoid talking about this or maybe it's it's considered maybe a taboo t- topic, talking about involuntary care for people who are really sick. But, you know, when you think about the, the plight of the woman that you just described, that, that to me sounds like a, a perfect example of the type of case that you're describing, like people who simply don't have the ability to make a, a rational decision for themselves that's in their own best interests. Right? Absolutely. And there's not that many of them, but they do yeah. exist in all our cities. And they're the people who are you know, most frightening to, to citizens. They see them walking around, screaming, shouting, talking to themselves, uh, obviously in distress and very vulnerable. And they're also, you know, they actually not that much of a danger in reality to, to, to other citizens. They're more of a danger to themselves, frankly. But yeah, that's exactly who I'm talking about. And they will not go into voluntary care, usually. Right. And what kind of reaction have you received when you've been speaking out on this on this topic? Like, have people come to you and said, oh, Julian, maybe you shouldn't be talking about this? Or do, are you getting the opposite response saying that this is great that people are talking about this now? Yeah, I've had more response to what I've been saying and writing about this than any other single thing in my whole working life. And I I had letters and emails from people I've never met, uh, mostly very personal, talking about how people had family members who needed this or friends and it just wasn't there for them. And, and also people saying, thank you for giving me permission to talk about this, because I really felt this strongly and there's a real need for it. And I've seen it in my own family, but I didn't dare even want to say it because I didn't want people to think I was a a bad person who just wanted to lock people up because I'm not that kind of person. And right. so it really kind of allowed people to talk about it for the first time because you're right, there's a real taboo about it. And people think that if you are advocating for involuntary care, you're, some, you're somehow you know, you're against civil liberties, you, you just want to lock people up and you're uncaring. Uh, and, I, and I actually think the desire to do this comes from a place of deep care and compassion, actually, and right. bitter just- experience. In the the one minute we have left here, where does this have to go from here? Like when you make the call for this and say, listen, this should be an option that should be explored. Is this something that the provincial government needs to step up to deliver on? Yeah, it would ultimately be a decision with the provincial government. And they are creating this complex care housing right now, which is great. And that will work well for those that are moderately challenged. But it, because it is voluntary, it won't, I don't think, ultimately work for those who are most unwell. So I, I would really uh, hope that the, the province could consider certainly a, a very carefully done and legally safeguarded involuntary care aspects to, to complex care housing and to, in, in the future. Now, this is not a cheap program we're talking about, though, right? I mean, we're talking about millions of dollars that have to be committed to this. It's not cheap, but the cost of not doing it is even greater, both financially in terms of the cost in the community and to care and to police services and to businesses, but also the human cost. And that's the greatest cost. And that's yeah. seeing people's lives 
just uh, just fall apart on the street and kind of die and live miserable, exploited lives. And yeah, that's that's the biggest cost here. And I think as a society, that's the cost that we should uh, most address. Julian, I I agree with you. Thank you for coming on the show today. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you very much.